Thanks, Bert. And uh, good evening to all of you. Could you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John? Go to John's, John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 22. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 22. And uh, as you can see on the board, today we'll be noting our fifth hour in the Doctrine of Inspiration. It's a seven-hour study. And today we'll be looking at the different views of inspiration. And uh, today, and we'll start off with looking at Jesus' view of, of inspiration and the, uh, and the apostles, the New Testament write, uh, writers. And uh, so uh, that's uh, what our uh, subject is today. And then in the next two, hour, uh, next two classes on inspiration, we'll be noting uh, on the next, uh, next Wednesday the liberal and conservative views of inspiration, which I think you find interesting. And then the last hour, we'll be talking about erroneous views of the doctrine of inspiration. Then after that, we're going to be doing inerrancy, and that's a four-hour study. And then we'll do a history of the English Bible. And I, I, it's over 10 hours. I don't know exactly what it is, but I think you're really going to enjoy the, uh, the history of the English Bible because you'll be amazed uh, at what people like Tyndale and Whitecliffe uh, went through when they to get us this English translation. And so... We'll have a lot of cool things to learn about. And actually, we'll learn about the faith of these guys as well. And I think you'll really enjoy it. And then we'll be doing after that, say I plan these things out. So uh, we'll be doing after that justification, sanctification, salvation, those doctrines. And then uh, we'll probably be doing prayer, which is going to be a long, say it'll be about 37 hours. And then we'll be doing probably either the Day of the Lord or a series on the church, which could take us a while. But we'll be, in the church series, we'll be doing a lot of cool things. So... One way or the other, Lord willing, we get to all of those, and uh, so and after on on Sundays we're doing Obadiah. We're almost getting we're near. We'll be looking at uh, verses sixteen and seventeen uh, this uh, Sunday, and uh, it's uh, it will be put almost done in a couple of weeks. So the next book I'm going to do is going to be Second John. I probably stay in the New Testament and go Second and Third John. No, knock those two books off. They're just one chapter long, very small, and then go back to the Old Testament and. Uh, and do a couple of books there, uh, smaller books. But I want to uh, doing the smaller books because, as I said before, I'm trying to uh, give us a a, um, a, uh, a feeling of uh, with accomplishment. You know, because every time I, I study a book or in t- and teach it, complete the study of it, and then teaching it, I always feel a sense of accomplishment. So I don't want I wanted. I mean, I could have started off with Genesis, and we would be in Genesis for a couple of years, but. I, uh, we'll get to Genesis, we'll get to Romans and books like that, and Revelation at some point. So, um, anyway, that's a, a preview of coming attractions. And uh, also, I, I, was, I was talking to, uh, I was sitting on my, my porch last night, and I uh, was smoking a cigar, and uh, I was, had a glass of wine, and I was sitting there talking, uh, thinking about stuff, and, and I, I was looking at, uh, you see on Facebook, these, and I was talking to uh, Clay about it, is uh, this whole thing in, down in Kentucky. And uh, was Asbury, is that how you said it? Was it Asbury? 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 So it's a seminary or is it a, I don't, I don't know. It's a college. Is it a Bible college? or I, I mean, I think so. Or my, yeah. So anyway, they, they have this, you know, there's this, all this talk about a revival going on down here. And I think people from Baylor, some of the students in Baylor are, are getting together and stuff. So, um, you know, I, I was thinking about it. And, and every time I see a clip now, I don't know ex- exactly what's going on there because I'm not there, so I'm not going to pass judgment or anything or say anything. Um, I'll just make some things before everybody starts talking about revival. Uh, I, I will say this is that let's hold the horses because when we talk about revival, some things have got to take place for that to take place, for revival. And uh, so the great thing is there's all these young people are, uh, you know, 
they're, they're getting evangelized, I guess, and, and, and they're supposedly hearing the Word of God. I, I haven't seen any clips where anybody's actually teaching the Word of God. And so uh, I'm holding off that. But here's a couple of things you need to understand is, and you go back to the early church, you know, the first thing is first, you don't have any revival. When you talk about revival, if you look up the definition, it's a, a, a resurgence, of, resurgence of something which is, uh, is, has not uh, had a, a great influence anymore. And so the, Christianity, when you talk about revival, you're talking about something where Christianity will have a bigger impact in the culture. And uh, so that would mean adding numbers added, but a lot of things people are overlooking is its character too. And there's a lot of things involved in character. So I would just say, it, it, I'm, I'm praying, I, I pray for the people there, but uh, there were a couple of things I found a little bit bothersome is that, uh, like for instance, I was watching this clip on the phone and somebody's trying to cast out a demon or something with you, somebody had a, and I, all I guess is, well, just give them the gospel. You know, what do you, I mean, we, we cast out the demon, you cast out the demon, let's say you do that, and then next thing you know, the person's still going to hell. <laughs> it's a, you gotta give them the gospel. That's what, the demons don't want somebody to get saved. Give the person the gospel. And, you know, but that kind of stuff is going on, which it's not, I'm not surprised by that. But that, that doesn't mean I'm writing off the whole thing. But I just want to say a couple of things before we start saying, okay, there's a big movement going on in the country. One, you just don't have revival unless you have the gospel being preached. And the word of God, sound doctrine, discipling people. Because if you look at the early church, they, Peter gave them the gospel. 3,000 souls got saved. Look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And the, every day they met and hear the, the, the word of God in the temple. Okay? And they heard the word of God. And they, his, they, their character was being changed. They went from being idolaters, pagan idolaters, and, uh, and, uh, and to being individuals who were totally dedicated and devoted to Jesus Christ, so much so that uh, they lost a lot of things by following Jesus. They were disowned from the Jewish you know, uh, synagogue, these people, these Jewish Christians. So if you're going to look at revival... There's got to be a change of character. When I say a change of character, the priorities of a person have changed. Uh, they're, they're, what's important to them is is it's got to be doing God's will, right? And then, uh, you know, what are they what are they what are they spending their time on? What are, what are their perspectives? Has their perspective changed on life? So these are all things you're going to keep in mind. And I will say this other thing. And I was I've been thinking about this, and it never really dawned on me until recently. Where I came from, where I was ordained, okay, this, uh, there was a Bob McLaughlin, right? He had, a, he had a church there. He started actually in Providence, and he was over a package store. He, met, he had a home Bible study. And there used to be prostitutes who'd be turning tricks and would come up and get the gospel. And some of them get saved, <laughs> okay? Then they grew, and then he ends up teaching in this, this, uh, this uh, East Bay, it was called, it was a school. And... Uh, you got to remember that Massachusetts, we're all Roman Catholics. I mean, there's not, I mean, some people who are not Roman Catholics, right? But it's predominantly Roman Catholic if anybody's going to call himself a Christian. So we don't even, know, we're not even taught the word of God. That was one of the main reasons why I left the Roman Catholic Church. So we go, and next day I, I get into his ministry. I hear about it around eight, 1989. And I went to visit him. I met, you know, Christine and him. Christine was his secretary at the time. And I guess he had tapes. I said, oh. Cool. How much for the tapes? He goes, it's grace. You should take them. I was like, really? <laughs> Put them in my bag, went home. and I, I, So I lost track of them. They, they ended up bouncing them out of there for whatever reason. I can't remember the reason. And then he shows up again in Rehoboth. 
And it was just like this place, like a warehouse that we rented. And they redid it. All the guys, like Ray was a builder, a construction guy. So a lot of guys. So they, they, we had a lot of kind of like this church. And uh, so they built out this place. And I got in there around 92. I found him again. I found he was there. I actually found out where his, 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 I got his number. And I, I called him up and said, where are you? I'm looking for you. So anyways, I go there. We used to teach Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. He used to teach Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, an hour, expository teaching, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. It was not unusual to be there on a Tuesday night, the beginning of the week, and have 150 people there. It wasn't unusual. And if you asked around who people were, <laughs> there were a lot of ex-Roman Catholics. And that was going on for a long time. Okay, it's since splintered. Then since then, Bob lost his health and everything, and a lot of things splintered. But like Jim and I came out of that ministry, we've had our own ministries, and so there were a lot of people. There was a that you talked about talk about change of character and what the the, the ministry was uh, uh, was doing. The Holy Spirit was working through the communication of the Word of God, and I look back now and it just it was like that was a revival. If you want to talk about a revival in Massachusetts, Massachusetts used to be the, used to be the bastion of Christianity. This is where the country started, in New England, right? And you had great expositors like uh, Jonathan Edwards and all kinds of people. And then, you know, with the, with the postmodern era of America, you know, you had the Enlightenment, you know, you have the offshoot of that. Next thing you know, Christianity is disappearing in Massachusetts. So much so today that, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> You go the, the the great you know the great church buildings they have are being made into uh, condos. I knew one guy who invited me to speak at his place. It's a historic church. George Washington went there, went to church, heard the word of God, and they had me teach. They was like it's unbelievable, it's beautiful, and he's still teaching. It's still yeah. so. What I'm saying is that was a revival. That was a resurgence of Christianity in Massachusetts, where it was dying. And then you had all these people, like my generation, that were so into the Word of God, into the Word of God. We were there every night. We, we were like, uh, it was unbelievable. It was just a great experience. And I just look back now, because I've had so many things that have gone on over the time. But I look back now, I was like, that was a revival. And it all started because Bob was teaching his butt off. You know, in fact, the colonel told him, you need to cut back. He says, you got to have some time to study. you got a time for your family. Don't be, don't, that's why the colonel just did four times a week. And this is why I kind of always, I, I mean, I'm teaching five times a week. We went to Bible ministries, but a little bit different dynamic. But Bob, you know, eventually cut back. I think, he's, I think he's, you know, it's three times a week now with him. But whatever it is. But that's where it started. It was the word of God was being preached. And listen to me. I know these people love music. I love music too. But a lot of these so-called revivals, it's all emotion. You know, at the end of the day, when the, when when the, it's like the, it's like the it's like the honeymoon. I'm so I love you, honey, and you know we're gonna have sex and all that, and I love you, love you, love you. and then about you know a couple of years later, it, you know it dies down. There goes you know it's not as a new thing as it was, and the excitement and all that stuff is, and now we're married. Okay, so I just say the jury is out. I like I think it's good and very important that we pray for them. They are many of them are brothers and sisters in Christ. And you just, you know, you just pray that, you know, the word of God gets taught. And maybe it was, and we didn't see the clips of it because nobody was, you know, filming, you know, pastor so-and-so up there or an evangelist teaching the word of God or giving the gospel. So that's what I'm saying. So um, when we talk about revival, let's hold our horses here. I mean, we all want to see it. And, uh, but, uh, you know, that, 
it's uh, something that, uh, you know, it's all God's working and it all starts with the Word of God being taught and the Spirit moves through people when the Word of God is being taught. That's how it started, the church started, was the gospel being proclaimed. So, and that character is a big part of that because it has, people have to change the direction in their lives. I mean, I, I mean, many of you probably could say, when, you, when I first got saved, I really, my direction in my life changed, but it really changed when I got into doctrine. And then when that happened, it totally changed. And then, you know, I'm, 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 my whole life was totally different. The people, all the friends, I remember when I was turned 30, they, had, they held a birthday party for me. That's kind of like the farewell dinner. Because I, I really, after that, within a couple of years, all my friends had changed to the people at uh, GBC and <laughs> Bob's Church. All those people didn't want to come along with me. You know, what I was doing. They thought I was a nut. So, and that's the other thing. Can, can, we'll, see, we'll see what's happening. So, but but uh, let's uh, keep that in prayer. And, uh, you know, just because, you know, people are singing, you know, how great thou art and over and over and over and over and over again, that doesn't constitute a revival. I mean, but uh, we just, you know, music's great and everything, but let's not get too uh, full of ourselves. And, and just be humble and pray for them. You know, not to say, you know, there's, not to say that people aren't getting saved or, you know, God isn't working in some way over there. I'm sure he is. So, uh, so let's, uh, let's uh, with that now in mind, and uh, thank you for Clay, because he, he, talking to him, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it, get, share my thoughts about it. So uh, it should be a John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 22. Let's take that moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take the moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, to determine if we're in fellowship with God, because any mental, verbal, or overact of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, he, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Holy Spirit, who speaks to us through the scriptures which he's inspired. And when we do that, we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So, if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting you, it's the middle of the week, you probably had a tough week, wherever it's going on, you know, the, the, the wife is driving you crazy, the husband's driving you crazy, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, your boss is a pain in the rear. Uh, I get it. Okay, let's not think about that. Let's not worry about that. Let's just uh, cast all our anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for us. First Peter uh, 5, 7. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us. We thank you for another day to study your word. We thank you for everyone here this evening and also who might, those who might be listening to the recordings at a later date. We thank you, Father, for this beautiful building that you've given us to meet in. And I think th thank you for the people that are part of this ministry, that are good stewards with the time, talent, and treasure, and truth that you've given them and are praying for this ministry and serving in this ministry. I thank you for each and every person. And you know who they are, and they're uh, producing divine good, and, and just encourage them that they'll be uh, rewarded at the Bama seat and as invisible heroes. I also thank you for uh, this subject of inspiration. I pray it would be a blessing to your people uh, now and in the future through the recordings. I also, Father, pray for our, our president. I pray for our uh, president and President Biden, his cabinet, his family, the executive, judicial, 
legislative branches of our federal, state, and local governments, and military, those in covert operations, intelligence. I just pray, Father, for them, that you give them uh, the wisdom and the moral courage to lead this country, raise up more uh, people with uh, establishment principles or expose people to the gospel for their salvation or uh, bring in whatever circumstances necessary to show them their need for the word of God as believers in case they might not be uh, uh, persevering in the word of God. I also lift up this situation, the, the, our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in uh, Kentucky and other parts like Baylor University and the young people who are... Uh, Getting into uh, getting exposed to the gospel and and all of course as we talked about tonight, Father, talk, people are talking about revival. I just pray for the situation there that you would uh, give the members of the body of Christ in this country discernment about this situation and people involved and the leadership involved in this whole thing. I just pray, Father, for them. I just pray, Father, that uh, the Word of God, the, the Bible doctrine, would be communicated to uh, your, your children and to disciple them and those who are not saved exposed to the gospel, because we know what your word says in the book of Acts and through the, the, the epistles of Paul, that revival starts with the communication of the word of God and the putting it putting into practice and character building. And uh, so we just pray, Father, that for that situation. And uh, so tonight, I pray also that you would help me uh, to communicate your word to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power, so I can uh, provide for them their necessary spiritual nourishment I also pray that you would help your people in the audience by the Spirit to learn, understand, and apply what they're being taught, to enjoy what they're being taught. And please, Father, break down any barriers that sin and Satan might put up that would hinder that from taking place. So, Father, we uh, pray for this uh, service in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Tonight, we'll be looking, as I said before the opening prayer, as you can see on the board, we'll be noting our fifth hour, the different views of inspiration. And the first view of inspiration is, of course, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why I have you at the Gospel of John right now. The Lord Jesus Christ, what was his view of Old Testament scripture? Because the New Testament wasn't written at the time. How did he view it? And uh, it's interesting, uh, his view was the same view of his enemies, uh, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes, the Sadducees didn't believe in the supernatural, but uh, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had the same view of Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, as the Lord Jesus Christ did. So throughout his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth appealed to the Old Testament Scriptures while teaching and considered them authoritative because they were the Word of God. This is never more evident than in the Gospel of John and John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. So look at John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 22. We'll pick it up there in context. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. The, the, the feeding of, the, of uh, the of people and the healing of people and raising people from the dead. Those are evidences, of, uh, manifestations of the fact that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah. The, the prophet that uh, Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18.15. The greatest of all prophets, the, king, uh, the Messiah. says, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. Uh, meaning they have the same divine attributes, the equal in nature. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Now think about this. He said, I and the Father are one, and then they want to stone him. Why? For blasphemy. So he's affirming his deity right there for us. So the next time you have a Jehovah Witness come to your house, take him to this passage, because that's what I did. <laughs> one time, I was in Iowa, when I first got to Iowa, and they bring along, you know, they, they bring another person along, and uh, the younger person, and of course... Uh, while the leader's talking to me, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, he's probably not going to, I'm probably not going to get anywhere with him, but I'm looking at that kid. And I'm praying, you ever do that when you're talking to somebody, you're praying while you're talking to the person? And I do that, real quick prayer, and I was like, and I came to this verse, and I said, look at the thing, they picked up stones to stone him. What do you think? Because he just said, I and the Father are one. Why would they be picking up stones to stone him? And they said, well, he was, they were equal in purpose. No. That's not why they, they picked it up because they, he was saying, I was God. I am my father. By just calling himself the son of man, the son of God, he was affirming the fact that he and the father, God, had a sh shared the same nature, which was blasphemous. Of course, unless you're, you are the God, God in the flesh. So his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to him, I said to them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. There you go. Pay attention to the context, right? Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That's all you have to do. Go to Jehovah's Witness today. They take them to that passage. That shuts them right up. What are they going to say? What are they going to say? Now, they may take you to John 1 1, which no, uh, no uh, translator and, or any Greek person, uh, knowledgeable Greek, uh, Koine Greek or any Greek, would say, you know, when it says, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was a God, there's no, no person who knows Greek knows that that's not how it's translated. It's a capital G, not a small g. But they're the only group that dissents, okay? So they must have got it right, we're all wrong, right? So they were not stoning you for any good work, they said, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, are, you a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, have I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I, am, I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. So you see in this passage, in particular verses 34 and 35, the Lord, when defending himself from the attacks of his enemies, he quotes scripture. And specifically, he quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. And then he says that this scripture can never be broken. In, in the NIV, it says, cannot be set aside. So this statement makes clear that Jesus himself, the Son of God, considered the Old Testament canon as being the supreme authority in judging matters. Now listen to me. You say, okay, we expect Jesus to say that. Well, when people who are... So there are going to be Christians, so-called Christians, or they're probably liberal in their theology, but you would say, okay, so, and I've had this happen with a person. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Yeah. Yet you don't believe the inspiration of Scripture? Not all of it's inspired. They say, I said, oh, really? So let's take the Old Testament. Did Jesus not say, affirm the Old Testament authority? He did. Now you might say, can that person get saved? Yes, they can get saved. They believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They believe in the death and resurrection. The person affirms that. They're saved. They just are screwed up on the doctrine of inspiration. They need to be discipled. That's their problem. So we see that we have this, uh, this uh, issue, and Jesus deals with it with Scripture. And his opponents are on a par with him in the sense that they both affirm 
the authority of Scripture. So he appeals to something they both agree on. The Old Testament is inspired by God. Jesus, again, he declares the Old Testament is from God in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at, uh, oh, you don't have to hold your place. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Matthew 5, 1. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When will they be filled? The millennial reign. Okay. Blessed are the merciful. It says, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if somebody persecutes you because you're a Christian, and an evangelical Christian that believes in the Bible and believes things like homosexuality and abomination, or, you know, you th- well, guess what? Be rejoicing. If they're persecuting you for it, demonizing you for it, hey, Thank you, Lord. Keep it coming, right? But that's how you should, that's the attitude you need to take because God's developing something in, in you and I when that happens. He's, now we're going through what Jesus and the prophets of Israel and his, Jesus' apostles went through, suffering for, for blessing, suffering, undeserved suffering for blessing. So then it says in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It can't. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt was a preserver in the ancient world, as many of you know. And so the, the believer, the disciple of Jesus Christ, he's talking to his disciples, who are obeying what he's teaching... Okay, they're obeying and they're having the, the, the spirits develop the character of Christ in their lives. They're the ones that are the preserver of the culture that they're in. And that's what we get the idea of the pivot and the you know, remnant of believers in the church that are the reason why the nation has not been destroyed. So it says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that simply would mean how does that play out in your own daily life? Very simple. Do your job as under the Lord. You don't have to go and bring, bring your Bible to, you know, to lunch. And, and I used to, and you could do that. But you know, try to sh- just put on a shelf. Hey, I'm a Christian. See? And you, people who read it at work, that's great. You deserve to get fired. You're on their time. They're paying you. Read on your own time. Read it at lunch. People do this all the time. But no, do your job as on the Lord. Be the best you can be at your job. Serve your boss who you can't stand and serve the boss with, with as, as if it was the Lord. Because at the end of the day, that boss, the bigger picture is he, the boss behind your boss is Jesus. You're going to have to answer to him. I tell you what, one, I had some really beautiful boss, bosses. 
Just to give you a little application, I had some, I, I had great bosses, but I had a couple of buttes. I had one particular person, my aunt worked at uh, a, a bank, and it was, a, it's like six branches, it was a small thing, but uh, I, I worked there as kind of like a, a part-time job, it was in between jobs, and I go, uh, and so this woman, I, did, I think, because I used to play a lot of the guys, one of the reasons why they wanted me to work there is because I was a good softball player. So we went from, they went from like a really lousy team to like one loss the next year when I joined them. And the, one of the pres, vice presidents, he loved me. He's like, you know, like, what do you want? You know, <laughs> you need a raise, we'll keep here. But he was like, so the, I used to play cribbage with the vice president, but my boss, she didn't like that. She felt really insecure. She actually thought that I was out for her job. I was not, I, if she actually talked to me, she realized I'm looking to be a pastor. And within, within two years, I was ordained. So I was not there for, to take her job. So, so she used to give me a hard time all the time about these different things. And all I, I, I remember one time I came home, and I was crying. I was like, my God, she's driving me crazy. I can't take it. I mean, I was literally crying. She was like, there's so much stress. And I was like, I don't need this. They're not paying me enough to deal with this garbage from her. And then, you know, it hit, the Holy Spirit goes, shut up, Bill. Just do your job as on the Lord. It's really easy. Who cares what she says about you? She's just making a fool of yourself, and you know it. And all the people in the bank know that she's got it out, has it out for you. I'm like, okay, I just calmed down. <laughs> had, had my dinner, had a glass of wine, went to bed. Out. That's what you got to do. It's just, you, you're going to drive yourself crazy. So do your jobs on the Lord. So I say all this because how can you let your light shine before others? Well, you're at your job. Easy. Do your jobs on the Lord. That's what Paul used to say to the slaves in Colossians chapter 3, right? Now, look what he says in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. That's a designation for the, for the Old Testament scriptures we pointed out in canonicity, right? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. One of the things Jesus had to do was not only suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire, but he had to fulfill the law. That justice and righteousness had to be fulfilled. He had to do that. Otherwise, he can't give us grace. Grace flows to us because justice and righteousness were, were satisfied with Jesus Christ propitiating the Father with his suffering, the wrath of God on the cross, and fulfilling the law. God can't just slip us in the back door. Something had to be done about us. And so we condemned, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't keep the law, and even Gentiles have it. Remember the Ten Commandments written up here, Romans 2, 14, 15? And so we, nobody's, nobody has excuses. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. So he says, I did not come to abolish the, the scriptures, but to fulfill them. Then he says in verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches them others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, now look at it, he just really drives this home, and he's, the audience must have been dumb, dumbstruck by what he said here. Because they're all saying, we don't have a chance. <laughs> look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And remember, in that culture, in Jesus' day, they were considered the spiritual people. Okay? So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, your righteousness has to surpass them. He says, otherwise you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I told you the story. There was a, they, they, were pl- they, wrote, they read the, 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 they were studying in some college and they were putting out, reading the Sermon on the Mount. And they asked the students, what do you think about the Sermon on the Mount? It's horrible. This is terrible. 
Why? He's asking for perfection. Who can be perfect? You got it. You can't be perfect. That's why you have to go and look to Jesus. It forces you to, that's what Paul says, that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.24, Christ, okay, he, we, we, the law was to lead us to Christ. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ. A tutor, it was basically the word in the Greek was, you take the hand of the kid and go to school. Bring, it's basically, the law is kind of like that tutor who takes the kid to school and who's, who's waiting for him? Jesus, the t- great teacher. So we see the, this is what was going on here. So that's why, that's why I said that one of the reasons for the purposes for the law was to show people their need. Here's God. He's holy, perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Here's Jesus. He is perfect. That's the way it is. That's why I always say when people, when you deal with self-righteous people, right, who think that they're, you know, you ask them, are you going to go to heaven? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm a good person. I keep the, I keep the, I keep the Ten Commandments. Oh, really, do you? Have you ever lusted at a woman? Oh, sure. <laughs> you're screwed. <laughs> As we say in Massachusetts, you're going to a lake of fire. You're up the creek without a paddle. You need Jesus. You're not perfect. Jesus, God is perfect. He demands that. He demands perfection. He's not, you're not getting anywhere around that. So that's why God had to send his son, I would say to them. You know? So we see here in, uh, in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, in particular, verses 17 through 20, notice that Jesus, again, appeals to the authority of Scripture and says that it is eternal and indestructible, implying it is from God, since God is eternal and indestructible. Is he not? Yes. He also appealed to Scripture when dealing with the temptations of the devil. Look at Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Oh, if I only I could type type all day, you would think I would do it. Oh, here we go. Luke 4, 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, this is after his baptism. Sometimes the Holy Spirit sends you to go one-on-one with the enemy. Okay? Well, what do you want to do God's will? Okay, if you want to do God's will, it doesn't, people immediately say, oh, I'm doing God's will, so therefore prosperity is going to hit me like, so wonderful. You no, know? sometimes, I have friends of mine, Pastor Jim, we always say, when things are going really good, you know, I must be doing something wrong. And for a long extended period of time, no. When you're doing God's will, it's going to be, you're going to have some problems at times. Not all the time, don't freak out, but sometimes. So if you look at Paul, look at Jesus. We're not above them, are we? No. So when you're going through undeserved suffering, and you didn't bring it on yourself, Rejoice. God's trying to form the character of Christ in you. He's trying to develop your faith muscle. You know, if you don't, if he doesn't put you through adversity, how is your faith muscle going to get strong? So if I want to get strong, okay, and be able to hit the ball, golf ball as far as Kirk, okay, I have to start doing some push-ups, okay? And I'm doing yoga now. I'm actually training for this spring so I can wipe him off the face of the earth when I get out there, like, like Tiger Woods in his prime. And so my, my eye wasn't twitching there. So... And so I'm doing that because I can't, if I can't get strong if I'm not putting some stress on the muscle. Look at, look at Henry. He is ripped. He's a 73-year-old man. He puts me to shame. He's ripped because he does something, works out all the time. Now, I embarrassed him now. But it works out all the time, every day pretty much. So that's how you get, that's how you get stronger. Your faith muscle is, is the same thing. It doesn't, it doesn't have any chance to develop, and it's, you're just sitting around all day, spiritually speaking, 
it's not going to get stronger. Adversity forces you to get strong in your faith. Okay? So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lead him right into the trouble, left the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us into problem, problems and difficulties. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written... He's quoting scripture here with the devil. It is written, man shall not uh, live on bread alone. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I give it to anyone I want to. How did he get that? We saw this in Jude, the fall. That's why he's called the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The whole world's deceived by him, 1 John 5, 19. He just, uh, the whole world is under the power of the devil, it says in that passage. So this is where he got it. It's temporary. It's when the second advent happens, he's, all, he's imprisoned. Okay? And it says, if you worship me, all of this will be yours. This wouldn't be a legitimate temptation if he didn't have that authority. Okay? Then it says, Jesus answered, here he goes again. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you were the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. So he, he's being, uh, he wants the, uh, the Lord uh, to be uh, presumptuous here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guide you carefully. He's quoting scripture too. They will lift up your hands, uh, they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So he used scripture. He affirms the, the inspiration of scripture. He used it to fight a supernatural being, the devil himself. Okay? So that's a little cue to us that if we're going to go through spiritual combat, you better know what your weapon is. You better know how to use the sword of the spirit, the word of God. The ones who are great prayer warriors, the ones who are great spiritual leaders, the great spiritual uh, 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 fighters, uh, war, uh, war, uh, warriors of history, Old Testament, New Testament, up to our present day and age, they're the ones that know the word of God. They know it. They know it. They have convictions about it. You can see it in the, the transformation of their character and their life and their priorities and what matters to them. They take up their cross and follow Jesus. They deny self. Deny what we, what I want, even if it's a legitimate thing, in order to serve God. Those are the people who know the Bible, but their weapon. The weapon we have is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And prayer's right there because God moves through the prayers of his saints, and a person who's a great prayer warrior will know his Bible because we read with the Father's will, which we're supposed to pray according to, is revealed by the Spirit and the Scriptures. So notice, he appeals to Scripture, our Lord. So, we see, throughout the Gospels, one can see Jesus asking the question, have you never read in the Scriptures? Have you ever done that with somebody? I, had, I told you that story, this person, they were telling, telling me, oh, the, 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 you know, Israel, the church has basically replaced Israel. And Israel is all done. Because they, they were, they, you know, the Lord disowned them, he divorced them. And they had passed in the Old Testament, he divorced them, okay? I said, oh, oh, really? And I said, it went back a little bit, and I said, you know what? Have you not read Jeremiah? Right after he gives the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Read the rest of the, book, the chapter. No one's going to wipe the Jew off the face of the earth. Read that passage. And I gave it, I copied to him, and I said, have you not read that? 
I still haven't heard from her yet. I'm just, I'm sure she's probably formulating her answer. I don't know how you can walk around that. The Jew is going to be around forever. <laughs> of course they are. God promised it in his word. So the, use that expression. Have you not read in scripture? It works out pretty good. It looks pretty cool when you, can, when you, get, when you have it at the right moment. And the Holy Spirit will give you that uh, discernment. So our Lord's confidence in the Old Testament canon also appears in Matthew 19.4 when addressing the issue of divorce. Look at, uh, look at uh, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19.1. You want to talk about uh, divorce and, and, and what all that stuff? Go to the Old Testament scriptures. This is what the Lord did. Matthew 19.1. Matthew 19.1. When Jesus finished saying these things, he left Galilee... And he went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. And large crowds were following him. And he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Before we look at that, you notice it says large crowds have followed him. And he healed them there. You know, most people, like today, they want to be entertained. I'm talking about Christians. Put on a show for me. That's what they were looking for Jesus I want to see him do a miracle. I want to see him feed people. I want to be fed. <laughs> I want that free meal. Yeah, Jesus, turn that water into wine, baby. And let's get that loaves of fish and let's multiply it because we want a feast. Let's see some action here. Let's put on a show, Jesus. That's what they were doing. They're following him. What do you think the crowd's following him? The minute he starts challenging them, like in Luke's gospel, chapter 9, 14, take up your cross, many people left. Look at John 6. Eat my body, drink my blood. They talk in cannibalism. You know, I always think about that movie, Life of Brian, which is whacked up. And they go, blessed are the cheesemakers. I mean, you can imagine some people in the audience go, blessed are the cheesemakers. You know how people are. No. So the, he's just, these people are, are looking for the entertainment value. You really know who the real people are, the spiritual, the, you know, spiritual growth. We talk about having character building are the people who they're not to follow Jesus to get something from Jesus. They're looking to give their life to Jesus because Jesus gave his life for us. That's, the, that's what I'm looking for, this, this whole thing, this thing down in Kentucky and, and Baylor University. I'm looking for that. If we get that, wow. Look out. Look out. Bring on the Chinese and the Russians. They don't have a chance now. If we get the church, that, people, uh, that kind of uh, approach, holy smokes. So it says in verse 3, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, there was two groups. Uh, of, uh, there was one that, you know, you could divorce your wife for any reason, burn the toast, feel later, stuff like that. And there were other ones, you know, you had to have biblical, legitimate biblical reasons for doing that. You know, they're not, um, obviously, immorality, you know, or you could be, you know, he's not supporting her. You know, he's not taking care of her, you know, because uh, back then she was totally dependent. You know, she, they weren't, women were out getting jobs like they have now, so she was totally dependent upon him if he wasn't supplying, you know, and especially conjugal rights too. Some people deny in sex. Paul says in Corinthians, don't deny each other, you know, so unless there's a legitimate reason to. So there's got to be a legitimate reason. So there's one group that, that, that was like, you could do it for any reason. And Jesus says this, haven't you read what he's talking about? They're Old Testament scriptures that they all agree on, is inspired by God. He replied that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female. 
Notice, notice it doesn't say male and male. Okay? The human race wouldn't exist right now if it was male and male. I'm sorry, it wouldn't. Have you, unless you know something I don't know. The funny thing that makes me imagine, I have to say this, it's just crazy to me. So they want to adopt children. Gay couples want to adopt children. Oh, okay. But there had to be a heterosexual relationship to get that child that you want. Think about it. Think about the, just like whack out, and it's mentally ridiculous. It's, it's just totally illogical. So having you read, he replied that at the beginning the creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Well, however, in our day and a lot of places in America, the guy's staying home and living with his parents. <laughs> I knew this one guy. Oh my gosh, fabulous Fred. Well, one of my guys in my neighborhood, we had some characters in our, in our neighborhood and I was probably one of them. And so this guy, he lived with his parents he never got married. I don't even know if I ever saw him have a girlfriend. He liked girls, and trust me, he liked girls. But this guy, he lived with his parents, and he was, is Fred still living with his parents? Yeah, they died, and he got the houses, <laughs> and he stayed with them all the way for all those years. I would have gone crazy after that. I mean, I love my parents. That's why I said when I had to come help my dad out with my mom, boy, that was tough, you know? You know they, my father would go, what are you doing? You can't throw the honey... You can't throw the honey, the empty honey thing into the recyclable. They will never take it. Why? They're going to go inspect the honey thing? Because he, he, he would clean it out and run the water and get it all clean. Are you kidding me? They're just going to throw it and recycle it. You, what do you care? That Massachusetts, they could do that. And I was like, what do you care? So this one's saying, no way would I want to live with my parents for, that, for any length of time unless it was absolutely positive. But this, some people are not leaving their father and mother and uh, becoming uh, one flesh with another woman. So then it says in verse 6, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? He did, Deuteronomy. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. That's called the, the, uh, you know, the permissive will of God. Okay, there's a directive will of God, and then that was the permissive will of God. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, the one who can accept this should, one who can accept this should accept it. So again, we see here the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows his confidence in the Old Testament scripture that it's inspired by God in Matthew 19.4 when de de addressing the issue of divorce. Also, he appeals to the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis in this passage to reaffirm, reaffirm God's original design for marriage. Uh, you know, I always like, you know, remember, you know the, the story of Jonah? And Jesus talks about it as an historical event. People say, that couldn't have happened. Well, Jesus thought it happened. He thought it was a historical event. He thought Adam and Eve was a historical event. You believe Jesus is God, right? Yeah. Well, then maybe you should drop the view of Jesus and stop listening to the scientists like Hawkins and all these other guys, the atheists. They're fools. They think they're smart and they're fools. Why would you listen to them? Listen to your Savior. The Word of God himself. <laughs> Unbelievable. 
No, when Jesus says something, you listen. That's that, that cinches it to me. If he said that, that was the way it was in the beginning, yeah, we didn't come from a blob, we came from Adam and Eve. He created them, okay? That's, and when he talks about divorce, I'm listening to what he has to say about divorce. So we can see that throughout the Gospels, Jesus testified that whatever is written in the Old Testament is the Word of God. He not only was of this conviction before his resurrection, but also after it. Uh, look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Go back to Luke. Luke 24, 13. I love this story. I love all the... You hear me say this all the time. I, I, when I, I catch myself doing this when I'm on, online with Winston Bible. Like, oh, I love this passage. Like, you say this about every passage in the Bible. But I, I listen to my playbacks. It's like, you say that about every book. <laughs> so what? I don't care. So, verse 13, 24, Luke 24, 13. Now, that same day, this is after the resurrection, okay? Two of them were going to a village, two of the disciples of Jesus, called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Jesus getting arrested, uh, crucified, the Jewish leaders rejected him, they they strung him up. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Now you say, how in the world did they not recognize him? Let me guess, if you saw him crucified and the way he died, you know, you couldn't even recognize he was a human being so beat to a pulp. You know, in crucifixion, and he was scourged twice, they tried to scourge him so he would die from the scourging. But he didn't. So he was a mess. He would be, it says in the Old Testament, he, people turned away from him. It was so disgusting. So they weren't expecting him. In other words, they were not expecting the man to show up three days later. His enemies did. That's why they secured the tomb and had a God put on it. They knew what he said, but his disciples forgot about it. I'm going to rise from the dead. So as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were, they, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? He knows, of course. They stood still, their faces downcast, and understandably so. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these last days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Of course, the women did. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe faith. All that the prophets have spoken. Faith in what God's word says. Do this. When you're going through adversity, and, and, and to coach, learn to coach yourself. This is what every Christian should do. When you're going through stuff and you fail, you know, you're lacking in faith and you're freaking out. Okay? Just go, oh, how foolish you are, William, as my mother would say when she was mad at me. William! How foolish you were not to believe what the Word of God says. What does it say? Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. 
I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Oh, how slow you are to believe, Bill. Do that to yourself next time you, you get a little shaky, okay? So then it says in verse 26, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That's what his Old Testament scriptures say. The Jews thought there were two messiahs, and even today, one that suffered, and then one that's raised, one that's glorified. They were just looking for the good stuff. They were cherry, I call it cherry picking the Old Testament. And that's what people, Christians do today. They cherry pick. And unbelievers do it too all the time. They like, I love when unbelievers quote scripture because they quote scripture out of context and they just look like fools for somebody who knows what they're talking about. And you, you can sit there and you go, you, you, know, you, don't, know, you, know, you don't know scripture. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So there's Jesus, again, affirming the Old Testament scriptures. So the New Testament frequently refers to Old Testament as scripture, which clearly implies a well-known body of literature considered authoritative by both the Christian and Jewish communities. Jesus Christ, as we saw, Jesus Christ himself referred to this authoritative literature in the same manner as did his contemporaries, as I pointed out to you. And the Apostle Paul does the same. According to the Law and the Prophets, his gospel is in agreement with the Law and the Prophets, Romans 1.17. So they both, Jesus and Paul, both introduced quotations from the Old Testament with the phrase, it is written. We saw that already with Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-7 through seven, is an early Christian creed, people. It's an early Christian creed which demonstrates how the Orthodox Jew view of Scripture was brought over even into pre-Pauline Christianity since it twice describes the death and resurrection of Christ with the words, according to the Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Very interesting. Also, in his epistles, Paul declares often the authoritative nature of his own writings. It's not arrogance. It's the truth. It's the truth. His, his scripture. He was writing scripture and he knew it. First, you see 1 Corinthians 12, 28, 7, 25, 14, 37. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 14. Galatians 1, 8 to 11. And of course, Ephesians 2, 20 and Ephesians 3, 5. So, we also find Peter, the second epistle of the Apostle Peter, which was considered by many one of the latest New Testament letters. He combines the commands of the, uh, this particular epistle combines the commands of the apostles of Jesus Christ together with the words of the Old Testament prophets in the sense that both are authoritative. Also, in, his, in this epistle, Peter states that Paul wrote according to the wisdom that was given to him. He was affirming that Paul's literature that he wrote to the churches, like Ephesians, Colossians, you know, First and Second Thessalonians, Romans, was inspired by God. And the book of Revelation... The book of Revelation written by the Apostle John as an old man also makes it, so that goes to show you, don't give up. God can still use you as an old man. If you're in your 70s or 80s, you ain't done yet till he calls you home. That's when the game's over. That's when you're called to the sidelines. That's your retirement when you die. You're not retired ever from the Christian service. Listen to me. You're never retiring from Christian service. I'm, hey, you could, there's some guys, like, you could, uh, they're pastors. Like, if I had to retire, it'd have to be because of health reasons. But even if I have to retire for health reasons, unless I've lost my mind, okay, to, to, to dementia or Alzheimer, that's what happened to my mother, 
then if I could still do, I'll still do something. If I'm teaching the prep school or whatever, but if I can't maintain what I'm doing, yeah, I'm going to step outside of the pulpit, but I'm going to still serve God in some way. You know, maybe it'll be just like sharing the pastor on who's taking over for me, something like that. Like somebody we know who does that for me. So the book of Revelation, written by the Apostle John, also makes direct claims to his own, its own authority and that it promises blessings to those who obey its precepts and warning those who might add or take away from it. Now, in the second and third, fourth centuries of the church's history, we'll end with this. She, the church, accepted without question that both the Old and New Testament had come from God through human agents. Uh, Irenaeus and Gregory of Nyssa, as well as Augustine, expressed this in their writings, early church fathers. However, there are differences among them regarding inspiration. Some church fathers lean toward a dictation view, while on the other hand, others to a looser interpretation. Uh, there were others that believed that the human authors were like a flute, which the Holy Spirit as the flute is played. Augustine and Origen, who assigned more agency to the human authors, are examples of the latter. Despite this, Christians of the first millennium believed the scriptures were inerrant and originated from God. So this view of scripture remained unchallenged throughout the Middle Ages, with a few exceptions, such as Peter Abelard, who began to question scripture's inerrancy. Now, when we come, when we come to the Reformation, the reformers, Luther and Calvin. What's the Reformation? It was when they, break, they were breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. The issue was about authority. The Pope was the final authority, the Roman Catholic Church said. No, he's not. The reformers like uh, Luther and Calvin. Luther broke, he was a priest. They broke away. And they basically said, no, the final authority is Scripture. And yes, we can interpret it for ourselves, and the Pope is not the only guy who can interpret it or the College of Cardinals, or whatever you want to call it. No, we have the gift of the Spirit. We're royal priests. We represent ourselves before God, and the final authority is the Word of God, not you or any man or any pastor. That was the Reformation. Okay, we're children of the Reformation. And one of the big things that they said was sola scripture. And of course, faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, the justification, they brought that doctrine back out. In the, in the public eye. So when we come to the Reformation, we can see that men like Luther, Calvin, Sphingley understood the scriptures as possessing divine authority and should thus be considered by all Christians as the ultimate authority for the church, which they called sola scripture. That's what we believe. Martin Luther regarded the human authors as the tongue, quote unquote, of the spirit. And Calvin liked to quote Isaiah 59, 21 with its reference to my spirit which rests upon you, and my words which I have put into your mouth. So Luther, Calvin, Spingley all affirm the inspiration of Scripture as God's word. And we'll end with this, these, th these last uh, points. Luther did question the inclusion of James in the canon. I mentioned this in canonicity. And the reason why, because he believed it contradicted Paul. However, this is, of course, was not a, quote, a, a, a issue, a question of inspiration, but of the letters canonicity. So it was accepted, as we pointed out. It's just that Calvin didn't, uh, Luther didn't understand. Paul was talking in a different context when he talked about justification and faith. James was talking to believers. Paul was talking to Romans, how, how is an unbeliever, a non-Christian, get saved, get justified before God? James, when he talks about justification and, and, uh, and faith, it's post-justification faith. He's not talking about it in the same, because he's talking to people who are already saved. Read the contents of the letter. He's talking to them that are believers. So it's a different context. So we must remember that before the Enlightenment, 
Reason had been viewed, this is going on today. It hasn't left us. The Enlightenment has done a lot of damage in a lot of ways. It was good. We wouldn't have had the Constitution we have and the Bill of Rights if it wasn't for the Reformation, okay? That spawned the American Revolution. But it's actually been an enemy to Christianity, especially now in, in modern times, in the 19th, 18th, 20th, 21st century. We must remember that before the Enlightenment, reason had been viewed as a custodian and servant of divine revelation, meaning a person submitted their reason to the authority of Scripture and of the church. And that's why I was watching this, this woman on, on Facebook, and she's talking about this so-called revival down in Kentucky. I say so-called because the evidence is still out, as far as I'm concerned, as far as my view. I don't know what yours is. But, so she's, she sits there, and she doesn't give you any Scripture at all for anything. I'm sitting there, wait, okay, wait, come on, give her the benefit of the doubt. She did. I felt my heart, and I was like, oh, here we go. You know, I felt about this. I felt all about feelings. And I just wanted to break out. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. Trying to run. What was that stupid song? That was a great song, actually. It was just make me want to throw up. It's all about emotion, how I feel. And, you know, good luck in marriage, honey. Because when you, you don't feel like your husband, you're loving your husband anymore and you want to go run off with, you know, your psychiatrist, that's what people do today. They, they just all about how they feel. All about how I feel. I'm not saying this is what everybody's doing down there. I'm just, just be aware. So when the enlightenment, as I said, there's this point, very important point. We must remember that before the enlightenment, reason had viewed as a, as, a, as a custodian and servant of divine revelation, meaning a person submitted their reason to the authority of scripture and of the church. I've said this before. It's very, if you're very intelligent, like super, super, you know, you're intelligent, okay? Be careful. Because I've seen this with people who are very intelligent when it comes to scripture. They'll give their, they're, they're so, they're so uh, skillful and uh, talented and, and, and inerrant within them that they have this mind that's, that thinks, you know, get, get great mentality. They, they're very, they're, they're brilliant. But when they talk, come to the scripture, they forget about the scripture and don't subordinate, subordinate what they feel or, excuse me, they think to what scripture is saying. Can you back up? That's great that your view is and your, what you, your opinion is. Can it be supported by scripture? And so they'll sit there and I'll have, here's a scripture. I'm not banging down the thing. I'm just, I get, man, I learned some of my recordings, but I'm banging the heck out of this pulpit here. I apologize for making so much noise, but man, I, I get excited. So I said, I said, look at, <laughs> stop laughing on me. So I, it's so funny. So they, it's what scripture says. Who cares what your opinion is? I don't even care what my opinion is. Who wants to listen to my opinion? If it's God's opinion, bring it on. When I come up before you, I'm not bringing, I'm, I, you're, you hear me, I'll tell you if it's my opinion. But other than that, other if I'm not saying, clarifying, you know, qualifying anything, you're getting the word of God. And I'll say, like I said, the things at the beginning before we had the service, about down in Kentucky. So I'm just saying, you know, I can't, I'll, I'll be dogmatic, and when I have the conviction of the scripture, you're going to hear me being dogmatic. And it's not arrogance. It's speaking with a f- conviction. If you really believe something, you know, some, some, I find this with women. They find me very, holy moly. And some women are like that. They, you know, then if I'm, you know, if I, which is usually what I'm not feeling well. My voice is shot. Like it was like a couple of days ago. I got allergies. And I was like, oh, you, was, you know, it's so much humbler. I'm so much humbler. What, what a change. Oh, it's my tone of voice. 
<laughs> Forget about my tone of voice. Listen to what I'm saying. Forget about how I say it. You know, like, oh, it's like, because if you just look at the, if you look at the, like with people who are, who are, who are deaf, and you have the closed captioning, they could just read that. Oh, the great message. I have these people who are deaf. They've been listening to me for you. And they'll read the closed captioning thing. It was so funny. And great message. But somebody else who hears that same message, because of the way I said it, they didn't like it. And most of the time, what they're actually complain, uh, complaining about is, it's actually, I have a conviction. I believe what I'm talking about. I wouldn't stand up here and pretend to say, I'm speaking, you know, I'm trying to teach God's word. If I didn't have that conviction, you should expect that from your pastor, that he speak with conviction. If he's not, he's, and he's a Mr. Milktoast, I mean, I'd go somewhere else. You think that guy, the Holy Spirit's using that guy to move you, your will to go? The Spirit's using move your will to go do great things for God and serve him? Probably not. So however, we see again, remember this point, again, that before the Enlightenment, reason had been viewed as a custodian and servant of divine revelation, meaning a person submitted their reason to the authority of Scripture and of the Church. However, the Enlightenment reversed all this and that it made revelation the servant of reason, which is going on in our country. However, the Enlightenment reversed all this and that it made revelation the servant of reason in the sense that one examines truth with one's own intellect and decides for oneself what is true or false. The Holy Spirit decides what is true or false, what he says in Scripture. So therefore, the Enlightenment presented a direct challenge to scriptural authority and thus inspiration. So postmodernism, which is what's happened to America and Western Europe, which is the, 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 chil- the child, the offspring of the Enlightenment, is one of the big problems that we're dealing, major problem that we're dealing in this country right now, because scripture is not, is not looked at as, as it used to be, as inspired by God. We're gonna go, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna live our lives based on how, how we feel, or my intellect, how smart I am. Well, you're not smarter than God, and so the, as I said before, the great, the, great, the great saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jeremiah, Daniel, the Lord, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, the God-man, and his apostles, and everybody who followed him, like the Luthers and the Calvins, or the Themes and the D.A. Carsons, and the, the Pentecost and Wolverines, those people, they devoted their lives to the word of God. They didn't care about what their opinion was, or anybody's opinion was, or how they felt. They cared what the word of God has to say. Why? Because it's inspired by God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson will be a great blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for everyone here this evening who is a serious student of the word of God. I pray this lesson will be a blessing to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> All right, I'll sing us a song. I just about forgot about it. I was wondering, why is everybody still sitting around here? Sorry. You know, I'm kind of like the absent professor sometimes. All right. Thank you for waiting for me.
got my, my guitar set up really nice. This guy found this guy. He was in the paper. So this thing plays so sweet. All right.
Minecraft.